welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. To the left. Ready on the firing line. Fire at Will. <laughs> Where in the hell's Will? <laughs> and then when we miss Will, we get what they called Maggie's drawers, which is waving this red flag says, you missed the target completely. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I left out one of the most important things about my ritual, so we'll finish that up. Uh, if you haven't got a pencil, you can get this from somebody else later. Each morning, religiously, automatically, every morning, except when I don't do it. <laughs> and this is what I, this is what I do. I've used a daily meditation book of different kinds over the years. Uh, for many years, I used uh, one day at a time in Al-Anon, the 24-hour book. Uh, <coughs> My wife gave me this book about five years ago, and I threw it in a drawer and didn't pay attention to it for three years. Let it age properly. (laughs) And then fished it out a couple of years ago and started using it, and I cannot believe how powerful it is. It's the most powerful step meditation I've ever seen. But, But because it's a sectarian book, you've got to make one slight adjustment if you have the courage. You have to change the sectarian words to program. Or Bob Rojas, whichever is, you know, <laughs> whichever is easiest to change it to. Instead of God says, Bob Rojas said. <laughs> but it is, it's a book called My Utmost for His Highest. It's the My Utmost for His Highest by a guy named Oswald Chambers. It's the most widely used book in that particular uh, affiliation. Uh, And so we must stay away from the religious, but yet we'd be fools to tie a hand behind our back and say we won't use something that works for us. So we have to walk a fine line there and hopefully stay on the side of the angels or whatever you call those things in your particular (laughs) slant on things. But uh, this thing is continually hitting me right square between the eyes because Oswald Chambers will not accept anything but a total devotion to God and this program. 
He says, any work done in a sense of you doing something is an impertinence. All things I do, I must do, knowing that unless, like a light bulb, those things are turned incandescent by God, I'm just being worse than useless. There's the classic story I used to tell about the woman who brought the hot dish and said, it's my Christian duty to bring you this hot dish, or I should say my religious duty to bring you this hot dish, but it is my religious duty to tell you that I don't approve of the way that you live. Them kind of hot dishes don't taste very good. I'd rather throw it, well, uh, I'm sure that whoever got that hot dish threw it in the garbage the minute that poor dear lady was out of the door. Okay, we must do our acts. If I'm here to save you, I'm in serious trouble and I've given you grievous offense. If I'm here frying my own fish, saving my own life as I am, as much as I humanly possibly can be, then I have a chance of being of some use to you. But because I, I must not intend that or hope for it or see the merit in it. It's just like when Bill and Bob went to call on that first Bill in the hospital. They went to call on him so they could stay sober. When Bill called Bob, it was so Bob or so Bill could stay sober. And Bob went over there to spend a half an hour with, with them and ended up spending six hours. But that was because he wanted to stay. Okay, so... Um, and then what I do is I, I take and write a digest of this in my daytimer over there, my daily planner that I use, uh, which is the essence of what I've read, so that I, uh, I'll write typically uh, somewhere um, from two sentences to uh, even as much as a half of uh, the, the day's meditation, which isn't very big, so that I fix it clear in my mind. And then I look at five blank pages where there's nothing written there. Those are the five days where I did it every day except when I didn't. Uh, but that, uh, there's a very comforting feeling there because I know I'll come around to it again. Okay, and that's part of my daily ritual. And some morning meditation has always been a part of my daily ritual. And, uh, and morning and evening prayers where I pray for <laughs> one of the litanies is the funniest you'll ever see because there's a there's such a weird juxtaposition of people it's people I have resentments against and people I love mixed in together as my friends and I'm praying for for them you know all mixed up and I hope there's no contamination from one <laughs> to the other intervessel contamination whatever you'd call that and then I, I pray for members of my family. And uh, what, what do I pray for them? I just pray for them. And the big thing that I'm praying for is so that I don't carry a resentment against anybody. So I most uh, vigorously pray for a member of my family or one of my friends when I have been most offended. And could easily cultivate 
tenderly a beautiful resentment. And by careful tending and watering and fertilizing, I could grow that resentment so beautifully big. Oh, it would be so lovely. But I've learned that uh, I don't like them things around my house anymore, them big ugly things growing vigorously because of I'm watering them and nurturing them so tenderly and justifying them. You can always tell how bad a person, a time a person is having with some of that stuff by the tone of voice they have when you ask them about it. Well, I got any problem with that. Oh, oh, oh I see. I see. So, um, so that's, uh, that's the part this guy has. Okay, and here's where you're going to need the paper. A while back, a stranger uh, who became a friend told me to start doing something. So I says, okay. And so this is his system that he wants me to use every morning. So I took a series of nine yellow tabs, sticky tabs, and put them in my AA big book. through nine and with a little appropriate notes in a couple of cases. My first note is pasted just inside the front covers of the AA Big Book. So there's two blank pages. We open the book and start with an open blank mind. Bob Ross, 5299. <laughs> Not just a quote, it's a quote with attribution and a quote with date. And then also on that little sticky back, I've got something that I desperately need. None of you are opinionated people like me, fortunately. But I have, it is opinions of our own which make us stupid. <laughs> When we are simple, we are never stupid. Unfortunately, all of you are simple, so it's no problem. But you get out of curiosity, or in the case of the interest of some friend of yours who is opinionated, you could write this down and then pass it on to a friend who needs it. <laughs> it is opinions of our own which make us stupid. When we are simple, we are never stupid. We discern all the time. And that's what that meditation book said on April 21st. Each April 21st that I read it. It's kind of comforting to know that every April 21st I'll read that it is opinions of my own which make me stupid. When I'm simple, I'm never stupid. I discern all the time. And that's again how I can make the discernments of what God wants for me to do is not to be so full of my opinions that I got so I got room and time to hear that okay that's number one okay for number two we'll jump over to page 86 and it says on awakening let us think about the 24 hours ahead we consider our plans for the day before we begin we ask God to direct our thinking especially asking that it be divorced from self-pity, dishonest or self-seeking motives. Under these conditions, we can employ our mental faculties with assurance. 
For after all, God gave us brains to use. Our thought life will be placed on a much higher plane when our thinking is cleared of wrong motives. In thinking about our day, we may face indecision. We may, may not be able to determine which course to take. Here we ask God for inspiration, an intuitive thought or a decision. We relax and take it easy. We don't struggle. We are often surprised how the right answers will come after we have tried this for a while. And here's a critical part. What used to be the hunch or the occasional inspiration gradually becomes a working part of the mind. Being still inexperienced and having just made conscious contact with God, it is not probable that we are going to be inspired at all times. We might pay for this presumption in all sorts of absurd actions and ideas. Nevertheless, we find that our thinking will, as time passes, be more and more on the plane of inspiration. We come to rely on it. And what is critical about these readings is uh, it is uh, closer than anything I've seen to the heart of the big book. This big book is a, such a deceptive book because each sentence sounds pretty simple. And it is. But you could take, uh, as Joe and Charlie do, you could take a day uh, talking about three sentences in the big book. And so the guy who says, well, I'm strong enough, I can cope directly with the big book. I don't need any help in it. I don't need to read the first chapter like Bill's story 20 times, as, as Frank told Indian John, or Indian Don. He said, read Bill's story 20 times. And Indian Don, by reading it 20 times, began to understand Bill's story. But we want to pick it up and read it once, fast, with our mind on something else, and understand it. And it doesn't work that way. So this is the... Uh, there was a guy, a famous speaker, who spoke about his difficulties with the big book. And he said, I thought it, the secret was written in there someplace, because I, I could see guys that had it. But I thought it must have been written in there in, in invisible ink. So I wanted to take and read my big book with ultraviolet light so I could find what the secret was. Because after five years in AA, he was still working in the car wash. And he was the only guy in the car wash who could speak English. He didn't take his fifth birthday cake because he, he thought newcomers would see him and think, well, boy, this program sure don't do much for you. Okay, I would like to get a hold of Bob and say, Bob, here's where, the, you know, this is the closest thing to the secret I've seen. Now, fortunately, he's in good hands with uh, Clancy, and they'll be telling him where the secret is. Okay, third reading. There is a solution on page 25. One, two, three paragraphs. Uh, yeah, three full paragraphs. Takes you over to the next page. There is a solution. Almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of shortcomings, which the process requires for successful consummation. Now, we found a simple answer to that. We didn't like all that leveling of pride, and so we said, hey, I'm out of here. I'm busy in other things. But we saw that it really worked in others, and we had come to believe in the hopelessness and futility of life as we had been living it. When, therefore, we were approached by those in whom the problem had been solved, there was nothing left for us to do to pick up the simple kit 
of spiritual tools laid at our feet. We have found much of heaven, and we have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence, of, existence, of which we had not even dreamed. Okay, and that's what the fourth tape will be about, is about the fourth dimension. The great fact is just this and nothing less, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences which have revolutionized our whole attitude towards life, toward our fellows, and towards God's universe. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our Creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do for ourselves. If you are as seriously sexaholic as we were, we believe there is no middle-of-the-road solution. And here's a very powerful point. We were in a position where life was becoming impossible. And if we had passed into the region from which there is no return through human aid, which is where most of us ended up, we had but two alternatives. One was to go on to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could. And we all know how that feels. Trying to blot out the consciousness of our situation as best we could. And the other alternative, to accept spiritual help. This we did because we honestly wanted to and were willing to make the effort. Okay. Number four is the third step prayer. Fourth reading on page 63. And you all know the third step prayer. Okay, number five, the five reading is on page 76 and that's the seven step prayer and you know that one but then the sixth reading is one sentence on the next page page 77 which is the point of it our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be a maximum service to God and the people about us our real service is to fit ourselves to be a maximum service to God and the people about us and as I've listened to those uh, AA tapes from the tape of the month, what I am struck by is the power of the sponsorship that I hear on those tapes. Each one of those men and women who are sponsoring there are fit to be of maximum service to the people who walk up to them. Okay, how did Frank know to taunt Indian Don by saying, I don't want to work with you Indians. You're all the same. How did he, like Frank said, he thought he, he or like Don said, he thought, well, Frank knew enough that, that anger, he knew his anger at the white guys was the only thing that he could use to, maybe, maybe he did, but I doubt that he did. I think what Frank was simply doing was expressing his horror at working with a number of Indians over and over again and continually coming up empty-handed. And uh, it was God's grace that that was the perfect thing for Frank to hear. Because I don't think we are deep enough in our minds to calculate these things. I think they have to come from God. Okay. And so the purpose of all of this work is so that you can be spiritually fit to work with that newcomer and be of maximum service to them so you serve your own sobriety and make your own sobriety in the process 
as bulletproof as you can possibly make it. Okay, the seventh reading is on page uh, 85, first full paragraph. It is easy to let up on the spiritual program of action and rest on our laurels. We're headed for trouble if we do, for, al- for sexualism is a subtle foe. We are not cured of sexualism. What we really have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. And again, we're doing this for two reasons. So that we maintain ourselves in spiritual condition, just like we all understand that in exercise programs. But it applies in spiritual programs too, even more so. And then secondly, so we're in fit condition to carry this message to somebody else. So we can do the inspired feats of sponsorship that we hear on these uh, Tape of the Month Club tapes. One guy took, (laughs) one guy was having a terrible time being sober and he ends up in a hospital ward just with tubes and stuff all over him. And one of his sponsee, or sponsor came in with a couple of sponsees and pointed at him and said, look, that's what happens to you idiots when you don't work this program. (laughs) And they walked out. (laughs) He thought the guy was coming to visit him. So the point is, we are always some use in this program. We are either a wonderful bad example, or we are a wonderful good example. Now I know which I'd just as soon be, please. Thank you. (laughs) Please, don't use me as your resident bad example any more than necessary, okay? So he goes on every day. Uh, what we have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition every day is a day when we must carry the vision of God's will into all our activities how can I best serve thee thy will not mine be done and that's the answer to who do we pray for these are thoughts which must go with us constantly we can exercise our willpower along this line all we wish it is the proper use of the will and the only use of the will Much has already been said about receiving strength, inspiration, and directions from him who has all knowledge and power. If we have carefully followed directions, we have begun to sense the flow of his spirit into us. To some extent, we have become God-conscious. We have begun to develop this vital sixth sense, but we must go further, and that means more action. Okay, what action do they suggest? We go over to step eight in our readings. On page 89, working with others. Practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when other activities fail. This is our twelfth suggestion. Carry this message to other sexaholics. You can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Now, For example, I've got a certain way of working with people and that works with some people. But you've got a certain way of working with people and it works for different people than what my way of working with people works for. And so all together, between the whole bunch of us, we got somebody who's going to be able to be available to the suffering sexaholic whose way of working with them is appropriate to them. I am not right for a lot of people. I am right for some. 
you are not right for a lot of people, you are right for some. So the point is you're just going through life doing the best you can with whoever you're of. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember they are very ill. And that we want to forget that. We want instant reaction. I fought that a fair amount uh, today at this meeting. There's a, a, a couple of people have walked up to me where their faces were really in trouble. And they wanted to tell me um, various things. And I wanted to say, hey man, can't you see your face? But of course, obviously, you know, they couldn't. One time a gal had a terrible face on her and my office at that time was in a building that had a, a coffee area with a long mirror along the wall. And so I walked her into that. It was terrible to play a trick like this on somebody, but I wanted her to see something. So I walked her in that room. I said, come here, we'll get you a cup of coffee. So we walked, started walking down that hall, and she didn't know it was all mirror on the other side. And then I just said, hey, look. And she looked in the mirror, and before she had a chance to compose her face, she saw her face that I saw. And it was, you know. And she got mad at me for playing that trick on her. Because she didn't want to see how she looked. Life will take on new meanings. To watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends, this is an experience you must not miss. We know you will not want to miss it. Frequent contact with newcomers and with each other is the bright spot of our lives. Okay, and you people in the Sacramento area here, in the Bay Area and surrounding towns, are having that experience because you're each in on the formation of your groups. And you're watching the joy of those newcomers as they come to the meetings and then grasp this thing that we're offering them and start moving towards it. It's a tremendous experience. Okay, and then the ninth reading is uh, longer and I won't re read through it, but uh, I'll tell you where it is. And that is on uh, page... Page 69, start with, uh, it's the first main paragraph. We've reviewed our own conduct over the years past. Where have we been selfish, dishonest, or inconsiderate? Who would we hurt? And what this is is an inventory of sexual relationships, but the point is it's an inventory of all relationships. Uh, Milt, in the Dumb Guy's Guide to the Twelve Steps, and he's one of the guys, he's the shooter that woke up in the morning and, you know, here's his empty gun and no holes in the wall. Uh, Milt was the guy who said he kept having sex with women and it kept blowing up on him and he couldn't figure out what was wrong. It was okay with him, it was okay with the gal, it was okay with him, it should be okay. Finally, he read in this hunk here, it's got to be okay with you and the other person and God. And he'd never asked, is this okay with God? And obviously it wasn't. And when he started asking that question, then he was celibate for quite a while. And he stopped, but he stopped having troubles. And his relationship with his daughters, he had daughter, grown daughters, his relationship with his grown daughters got radically better. Because he, he wasn't using women anymore. 
you read that uh, page and you go down on the next page, page 70, uh, you read the three paragraphs on page 70, and if we have been thorough from about our personal inventory. Okay, that's another piece of the ritual. And like I said, your morning and evening prayers, going to meetings, withdrew from our habit. So, those guard us against. But the more we're focused on those things, the less trouble we get into. Because this last uh, tape is going to be on kind of the enemies of our addiction, the enemies of our program. I got some help from Glenn Kay on this. Uh, the lies our disease tells us. If you want what we have and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, then you go deeper in the steps so you can live them, not just talk about them. That's the best defense against all the lies our crazy head tells us. If you want to hear crazy head lies, just listen to your fellow sexaholics, ask, especially the newer ones, ask questions about just exactly what they can get away with. And they'll want to get away with everything they can. Uh, even after we're sober for a while, we still hear the sirens of our demons calling us. It is only by developing habits of meetings, 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 and phone call therapy and so forth that we can stay sober in times when the voices in our minds are calling us. And then later on we can take our recovery for granted. Oh, I got a, I got a wire now, boy. And the answer is no. Like Vince, old Vince used to say, well, he said, I thought I was practically walking in the footsteps of Christ. <laughs> and then his sponsors would, he called them the, what did he call them? I forget what he called them. Anyway, they would just hammer, hammer on him. Vince, can't you understand? Can't you understand anything? I know, he'd sit at the bargaining table with them. That's it. And they'd hammer on the bargaining table. Vince, can't you understand? Can't you understand anything? And he, he was a plumber in Bozeman by that time, and he would go back down to Denver, where one of his home groups was. And, and he said if he couldn't get every bid on every plumbing job he bid on in Bozeman, he'd be out of sorts. Because he, want, he was so greedy and, and selfish and wanted everything, and they'd hammer away at him. And he'd go down to get his kind of sobriety and serenity straightened out. So what it is, is we take the wolf of addiction and kick it out the front door. The wolf of addiction goes out and, and kills the sheep, skins out the sheep, puts the sheepskin over its back, and comes in the side window disguised as a lamb. Oh, come on, you cute little lamb. Oh, aren't you lovely? <laughs> What big teeth you have, you little lamb. <laughs> the better to eat you with, my dear. And uh, I'm, just, I'm just startled as I go through my program. All of the chances there are for me to get lied to and for me to want to believe it. 
and unfortunately I got a wife and uh, she get you know get a new sponsor get a sponsor get a new sponsor do this do that you got this problem you got that problem <laughs> and I got to be welcome to hear it I got to be welcome that news I, I got to say, say thank you <laughs> that's hard <laughs> very hard I'll tell you a story that I use a lot and it's a powerful story This uh, in this town this uh, young woman became uh, pregnant a long time ago and they parents became very angry and said who got you pregnant and she named the spiritual teacher who had just come to town and so they went to him and said you terrible man you've gotten our daughter pregnant and we will ruin your reputation in this town and he just looked at them and said I see so uh, he went about his thing and passed his around the village passing his begging bowl and receiving his offerings and a while later the baby was born they brought the baby to him by then his offerings were falling off but they said here this is your baby you must take care of it he took the baby and said I see and a while later the daughter relented and said no it was not the spiritual teacher that got me pregnant it was the merchant's son next door so they went to the spiritual teacher and by then he loved the baby and they said we will take the baby back and he handed them the baby and said I see guess what why is that story around for five, been around for 500 years it happened to a real spiritual teacher a man named Hakuin 500 years ago why did it stay around kind of an interesting story isn't it a little bit of surrender there no bargaining no deals with God just I see okay guess what you and I got to learn to say I see at least I have to I, I don't know about you maybe you can get away with arguing but I, I can't I got to learn to say I see Well, uh, I know where the <laughs> I know where the problems in this program, the temptations are. Uh, you're 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 wrestling with. Uh, fortunately for me, more of them than I'm wrestling with right now. I've got my share, but I've tried to tell you. Well, the, well not tried. To, I've told you about them as well as I could. So you tell me about some problems. You've seen other people have, and not you, but I mean, <laughs> somebody around you, you know. Okay, yeah. Up here. Uh, let me see if I can hear myself. <laughs> yeah. um, one thing I've noticed for myself when I came, I'm Bruce, I'm a sex. I'm Bruce. When I came into the fellowship, uh, I came in with the possibility of losing my family and my wife and all that. And I was highly motivated and uh, did pretty well for a year. And then I got complacent and started slacking off and had a slip and another slip and another slip and another slip. 
it's been a real struggle to because I didn't lose my family. I had slips. The worst thing I thought would be I lose my family, and that's not happened. And so what I realized is I've I managed to accrue sobriety for my family, but now I have to accrue sobriety for myself, and I'm having a real hard time thinking I'm worth it or getting the motivation to do that for myself. Thanks, Bruce. Well, you saw the answer, didn't you? You know, uh, we can do for others that we what we can't do for ourselves. But you notice he, 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 said, he said the same thing we talked about earlier, and that is, if he does it for himself, he's got to be worthy of it. Okay, there's a little bit of God problem in there, right? How could God make a creature like uh, my story? Is just a perfect example of that. Okay, you got to take a Minnesota guy, move him to Montana, then get him to Phoenix. He's got to have a wife who have enough recovery. He's got to have enough recovery so he can hear. His wife's got to have enough recovery so she can be mad. Uh, he's got to take his sexual addiction down as far as he did. Uh, there's got to be a group start up in Phoenix, a uh, sex addiction group. It's got to get changed over to SA. And to do that, there's got to be the Dear Abby letter. And then uh, there's got to be a guy, a preacher, wandering around Bozeman, or rather uh, Phoenix, saying, uh, I got so sexually addicted that at the end I was just looking out over the congregation and figuring out who I was going to have sex with that night and stay in a motel in my own town. At first he was going to motels in other towns. All, and, then, and then there has to be a woman who hears this, who finds out, who says, boy, I'm an Al-Anon of the world. i got to figure out how to help people who got this problem. I'll get his name and address. And then she knows my wife. Okay, now all of those, Bruce, has to happen together at one time, so this child can become sober. Now I look at that and I say, what in the world kind of God will run this whole universe, as near as I can see, to make all these things fit together so I can have sobriety? That's tough to accept. That's tough to accept. It's a free gift. But look what it implies. That I'm worth all that? Come on, look what I did. I'm worth all that, he says. And you got to accept that you're worth all that, whether you like it or not, you dummy. Okay, see, see what I'm saying? So I have to take this free gift. That's what grace is, a free gift. No strings attached, no merit involved. <laughs> if merit involved, <laughs> who would be here? <laughs> you see what we're, we're so yeah we're worth it and it's not us not for us to question God and say we aren't look at the impertinence in that we're saying God you don't know what you're doing dummy you shouldn't have saved me I ain't worth it I'm a dirty dog. I should pay for what the harm I did. I know that. I should pay. How much should you pay? Well, I should pay a lot. How much? More than I've paid. See that? 
See the egotism and arrogance in that that you, that you and I think we know how this should go? Yeah, Bob. Um, Jess, we've seen people with uh, seven and eight years um, slip. Uh, what's your take on that? Well, I think, I think it's just been a lot of what Bruce is talking about. And then it's also what those readings talk about. It's easy to rest on our laurels. And uh, uh, we, watched, we watched it nationally. We watched a couple of people slip who um, had some years of sobriety. But they got to, they got to doing it for others and, and lost their honesty. So those readings that I gave you to me are the answer to every one of these questions. We have to do this to get our daily reprieve. Okay, I'm talking to you so so I can have a daily reprieve from my addiction. I have, I'm doing this so that I can stay spiritually fit. So when somebody needs help, I can be more like Frank and really be able to help. We had another story, a very touching story, a very interesting one. There was this gal who came in and she was awful. She was you know, um, some kind of sex deal and go-go uh, dancer and stuff and she had like chains around her waist and chains around her ankle with with her belt around her ankle with chains from her straps around her, her, her ankles to the straps around her waist and coming in in short skirts and violent colored lipstick and hair that went 16 different ways. She walks into a, an, an AA meeting. An old guy there saw something right to the heart of her. He said, <laughs> he didn't say it, but he saw that the chances are she couldn't be sponsored by a woman. And despite the fact guys are supposed to sponsor guys and women, women, a guy sponsored a woman. And got her in shape so that he could turn her over to a woman to sponsor but it took two to four years for that to happen. And like one time he said, oh, you got to come to this meeting. And she came to this meeting and here was this woman with uh, just this beautiful old-fashioned kind of dress and a little cameo necklace on and stuff. And, and she thought, how come he brings me to see her? What can she possibly have to say that's got to do with me? Well, it turned out the lady was very much like this gal when she came in and this gal was just flabbergasted and she said to this guy's sponsor Bill say but Bill she's a lady meaning you know she's made the transformation and Bill just yeah nods his head yeah okay to give gifts like that you and I better be in spiritual condition we better be able to lift the spiritual barbells a little off the ground once in a while. How are we going to lift spiritual barbells off the ground once in a while? You're going to have to spend your time in the gym, in the weight room. You know, lifting spiritual weights. Okay, those are called meetings. That's what our workouts are. And then they're called 12-step calls. And they're called calling one another. And we keep doing that stuff. 
And, and there is no simple recipe to the question that Bob asks. It is that. It is this whole program. It is the ritual that Ken D. talks about. In fact, those of you who want to order the tape of the month club from Glenn, what you can do is write on your request that you want it to start with certain tapes. And, and uh, you, so you can say, I want this as tape of the month club, but I want my first two tapes to be like Indian Don and Ken D or something like that. And Glenn's used to that because that's what usually when I tell people to join that or suggest it, very suggest very gently that they join it. <laughs> uh, you know, I suggest that they get a tape or two that has particularly struck me in the recent time. So that's the problem there. Now, one thing I need to comment on, and that is you folks are weary, but, uh, well, here's a perfect example. We need to do, we're doing this not just for you and not just for me, but we're doing it for all those folks who are going to listen to these tapes. Because they aren't tired right now. This is a tape they're listening to on some given day, and they're hungry and hurting, and they need help. Now you and I can take the rest of the day off and say, "Well, we put a lot of we did it. We did a good run at it." But we're not going to do that. We're going to persevere through. Yeah, Bob. I got another question, Jess. How come you see some people come into this program, and um, even people that get sober, and um, they're still kind of um, jerks? <laughs> they're what? They're still kind of jerks. Ah, yes, that's. Uh, being a jerk is comes natural to me. I'm really accomplished at being a jerk, so I don't need any effort at all to do it. And the answer is, is God wears away on me in His own inexorable time frame, just like a glacier in a river. Who wins? The rock or the river? The river always wins. Always, that rock is always on the way to being a pebble. Now, like Vince used to say, he said, I hate to have people ask me how long I've been in this program because they'll hear it and say, gosh, it sure don't do much for a fella, does it? <laughs> but we're all on the way to being a pebble. Now, sometimes we ain't making satisfactory progress to suit somebody else, and that's just, um, that's just the way it goes. But we're all of some use and we're all of it, 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 like that one, one reading said. There are certain people that can relate to certain people. So each of you are tremendously valuable. So, and I'm tremendously valuable to certain people. So please, those of you who see me as a jerk, and there are, you know, there have been known to be people who see it that way. <laughs> okay, I, I, I beg your sufferance. But we're all valuable in recovery in some way, a mysterious way we don't understand that God weaves this thing together. And, and I guess uh, not being a jerk is one of those blessings like uh, financial wealth. Like Vince used to say, one minute we're looking for a can to cook up in. Like that's how they cooked up in the jungle. They had a gallon can and they'd throw any 
food they could get in there and then build a fire underneath it and that's a can to cook up in. He said, one minute we're looking for a can to cook up in, the next minute we're looking for a place to park our Cadillac. Okay, because this program tends to bring you tremendous financial blessings, but does not always bring you tremendous financial blessings. And again, like I talked about earlier today, the trick is working the program when God withdraws for reasons known only to God those blessings. So that the answer is, is jerkdom is a land that we all have some acquaintance with. <laughs> I'll never forget the prostitute. Uh, we had a, a, a prostitute in a, one of our first groups in Salt Lake City. And uh, uh, she had gotten into AA, but it hadn't worked for her very well because once in a while she didn't feel right. In AA, she'd go out and turn a trick for $300 so she could feel good about herself. And she thought, I don't think that's the best way to do that. So when I came to town to speak to the Old Readers Anonymous group of which she was a part of in Provo in 1983, she came up to me afterwards and she said, Jess, could I join your program? And I said, how old are you? And she said, 35. I said, you're not old enough. And she thought I was serious. <laughs> <laughs> So she got all, you know, so she joined the program and so she and Steve and, oh, and then her, she had a friend who was a prostitute and they invited this third guy, a counselor, who for some funny reason was an SA and they guessed that he might be sexaholic because it, on his Sunday morning spiritual speeches that he was famous for in AA, there were a lot of women hanging around him afterwards. So they said, hey, we think Steve's a sexaholic. So we'll get Steve and ourselves, and, and Jess says, you got to do a first step to the group. What we'll do is we'll do our first steps to each other, and then we'll open the membership up and invite a bunch of other people in after we've done our first steps. So they did that. But anyway, then she showed up at Simi Valley with, uh, at the meeting uh, that December. And somebody asked her, well, what do you think of the, these guys and the way they look? Oh, she said, a typical bunch of Johns, she said. <laughs> which is a prostitute talk for a, a trick or a customer. So that's how you and I look. <laughs> that's jerkdom. And um, we think we're pretty cool, but uh, <laughs> Tandra doesn't. <laughs> so, um, I mean... In far apparently, we look like a typical hungry John intent on their own interests, and we will gradually lose some of that look, fortunately. But um, some of us get a lot of blessings fast, and others don't. And now, by and large, though, area the critical areas of our life had better improve. Or we got something going wrong in our in our program. We don't have to uh, be parking a Cadillac uh, necessarily, but we do had better we better see some improved relationships in the family. We better see some signs, some exterior signs that we're on the right path. And if we don't, we better look in the mirror and say, okay, what's wrong? Somebody asked me about my books, 
that I wrote, uh, I wrote seven books, and they said, well, you're a writer, and I said, no, I'm not a writer. And a lot of people, you know, think I'm a writer, because I am a good writer. But my books were written because when I had my heart attack at 35, I realized I laid there in that emergency room that I'd been spending my life trying to impress other people. Typical sexaholic deal. And the next thought I had in the clarity of God's grace was, I'm never again going to do anything I don't believe in. And then my wife came in, and then I went into the blackness of a heart attack. But what I saw, what my wife and I found after that, is I didn't know what I believed in. And we spent, uh, that was 62, from 62 to 69, figuring out what I believed in, which was seven years. And then I was asked to speak to a group of nurses for two and a half days on communication. And they thought I was going to, because I taught writing and speech, they thought I was going to speak on communication, communication. And I was prompted to say to them at the opening of the two and a half days is the secret of communication does not lie in the commas and the periods and the length of sentences, although I knew all those things. The secret of communication lies in having a good heart towards other people. And if you have a good heart towards somebody, you will always be understood properly, at reasonably. Or if you do have a misunderstanding, the two of you will be able to straighten it out. And so I said, how do we have a good heart towards other people? And the secret to that then is having a good heart towards ourselves. And so what the books are is essentially the story of how we have a good heart towards ourselves and a lot of other kind of questions that have been asked here. But I wrote those books really as a sideline to my search first for knowing what I believed in and then secondly for doing it. And it is the doing it. it. There's nothing worse than the authors of books like mine going out there in the circuit, writing new books and plugging the old ones and trying to make them go. And that might be fine for them, but it is not fine for me. For me, my job is to live these ideas. And if I'm not living them, the talk is pretty hollow. So that the, this talk is a sideline, a, a side effect to living these ideas. That's what I do day after day, week after week, year after year, with every three or four years. I'll sit down and do something like this and then go back to living it. And I don't do this so I, I don't live those ideas so I can do this. That's the tail wagging the dog. I live the ideas and then occasionally, if it's appropriate, do something like this. But I must not be distracted by something like this from the living, the day-to-day -day living of these ideas. So it's like being a shoemaker. If you're a shoemaker, the people in your family better have shoes. Now that doesn't mean they have to have 60 pairs of shoes, but they better have shoes. How can you say you love me when you don't take care of my children?
how can I say I love my wife when I don't take care of our children and her? And talk is cheap. And that's why this kind of talk is so dangerous. Because it can be so intoxicating. And the poor guys who are out there in this circuit have lots of troubles. And I had plenty of troubles when I was on that circuit, talking. I'd go you know, on tours to promote my books and make speeches and stuff. And be asked to come to cities to speak for two, three days. And, and uh, some of that was pretty ugly. Where are we at in time, Bob? Do you know? Or Bruce, do you know where we're at in time? 25 minutes. About 25 minutes. Okay, what are some pitfalls that you guys are running into? Or that you're seeing friends run into? <laughs> you must never forget those friends. I mean, they... <laughs> some of our friends just don't have programs. <laughs> they just aren't sharp enough. <laughs> My personality is such that I just want to give them all the wisdom I have in about five minutes. Wonderful. Open up his head and yeah. pour the whole thing just in. Shove it right in there. That's perfect. Perfect idea. I was working with others yesterday and the day before. It seems like Bill's speaking to a, uh, a kinder, gentler, slower pace. What's that? It seems in Bill's uh, book, the big book there, and working with others, he's, he's suggesting it goes slow. Yes. Just a little more. So right. A little more. But you know, again, here again, I'm just rushing ahead and just all right. full of enthusiasm. And right. So anyway, you're okay. There's a good answer to that, and that is uh, giving somebody this program is like feeding them an elephant. Okay. How do you feed somebody an elephant? One bite at a time. But again, it's a test of our crazy ego because we want big results fast. That's impatience and egomania. Okay? Well, the thing that I need to... Oops, you need to come down and so you can be preserved for prosperity. I have been on the sixth floor. Hi, Dan. Um, in both my professional and my domestic life, I have a lot of stress. I have three children that give me uh, a lot of trouble half the time. Um, I got a wife going through her own 12-step discovery, and I have my own professional business, uh, which I run and I'm totally responsible for, and the responsibility is crushing sometimes. Um, and I find that I either get bored or frantic or resentful. One of my favorite sayings is it's unbecoming to whine about success. Um, but sometimes it just feels like I'm too successful. Yeah. And um, it's difficult during an entire day to be picking up the phone, writing things, dictating, rushing around and not start thinking about how nice it would be to take a break. Right. Go on the internet. Yep. 
at Palm Six. Yep. Um, now, sometimes I go for a walk. Sometimes I read the National Enquirer. I found something else to do other than act out. But yep. stress and all the different emotions that come from that are what I have the hardest time with. Okay. Okay. Fortunately, there's a good answer. That answer is it takes time, though. What we're learning is to learn to accept life as plain vanilla. We're interested and used to the roller coaster. Okay, and plain vanilla life is like this. Well, what's what's the point? <laughs> who, who wants to live plain vanilla? Well, the answer is we make uh, we got a tremendous ice cream company in Bozeman that makes. Uh, they call French vanilla, and I'll tell you that French vanilla is unbelievably good. And I, I've, I've thought of it often when, as I helping myself to a dish of plain vanilla ice cream in the or French vanilla ice cream in the evening. Oh, okay, life is plain vanilla because we needed that alternate drunk of those highs and lows, that roller coaster. And getting getting unhooked from that is hard, it's slow and hard work. And uh, I've had a lot of experience too with a friend, and uh, I know all those feelings and all those experiences. And uh, but the consequences are really, really tough. What business are you in? I'm an attorney. Attorney. Okay. Um, the answer is you you're seeing with half open eyes only. Uh, you're hurting your clients. You're hurting your business. I don't care how successful you are, you could be twice as successful with good sobriety over a period of time. Five, you know, five, ten years from now. Because, like I said earlier, I, I'm a marketing researcher, or rather, my management consultant, a marketing expert. I've won awards, all kinds of stuff. In addiction. But the marketing I'm doing now is just night and day different. Now, so it isn't experience because I had, I've had so much experience. You know, forty years' experience is not that much poorer than t than fifty. Uh, so when you got forty years' experience, you've got really got about as much experience as you can have. So it's clarity that I see now that I'm getting from this new kind of life. And again, I, I spoke of that with John Berman comm committing suicide. Because he didn't have the roller coaster in his life, and he couldn't see himself writing poetry. Because he's, a, I don't know, he's a Pulitzer Prize poet at least, and 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 it meant so much to him that poetry. But it was part of a way of life that was. Thank you. Good luck to you. Uh, it's it is tough. It's da but it's dailyness. It's the dailyness of. A ritual, and that's what Ken is getting at in his tape. Hey, good, good luck. Now, I wish we had a, a quicker, easier cure for you and a better answer. But I can't, I can't figure one than that. Yeah. yeah. My name is Todd. I'm a uh, sexaholic. Yeah, Todd. And uh, I have this friend. That, uh, <laughs> <laughs> has been sober about 90 days and uh, <laughs> a few months ago uh, before he got sober he had a girlfriend 
that what, well, she wasn't really a girlfriend. She was really just more of uh, somebody to have sex with. That's the kind of girlfriends I had, too. Yeah. <laughs> I had a couple of those. <laughs> she, but she, um, but she was smart and she was a musician, so he was thinking that maybe, um, maybe there was a chance that there could be a relationship with her, even though that's not what he was doing. But he, uh, he, he was a, he's a singer, and uh, they would get together. He was trying to get ready to um, have an audition for a Bach uh, piece of music. She was helping him because she was the um, accompanist, and. They learned the music together really well. He got he he learned the piece of music really well. But part of the deal was when he would go over there to to practice with her. That wasn't all. They they didn't just practice music. <laughs> and um, he stopped seeing her at that time because he re he had a, a girlfriend that he was really seeing a real girlfriend that he was involved with. He, and it made him feel terrible to be going over to see this other woman. So he told her that. He told this was before he ever came to the program, but he told her he felt shitty by doing that. So um, he stopped calling her. He stopped going over there. But and then she called him and begged him to come over and just do something to him. And he said, "Well, okay." So she did. And then he he felt terrible about that even. So eventually he got into the program and. Um, now, he's in the same choral group, and it's time to start rehearsing for another Bach piece. And he was thinking, I need an accompanist. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> I know this accompanist is really good. Uh, yeah, I know. That's what she does. <laughs> and I don't know anybody else who's as good as she. I understand what that. What she does. So, I was, he was thinking that maybe he should call her and uh, admit it was her idea that they do something else. Maybe that would be okay. Yeah, yeah well, that would be kind of okay, but not enough okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's what he was thinking. He wasn't he was thinking. He, was, he almost had it rationalized before he came, yeah. before he went to a, a retreat. What's your story reminds me? <laughs> what your story reminds me of, Todd, so much is in the early days, these two old AA that helped us, so was a, one was a pair, was a husband and wife. And she did all of her business in a bar. An alcoholic, you do all your business in a bar. It was years before she found that she could buy cigarettes someplace, like in a grocery store. <laughs> she bought her house in a bar. <laughs> bought a horse in a bar. <laughs> okay. Uh, a sexaholic can't can't uh, not only not think of something else, but why should you think of something else when you've got such a wonderful sexaholic, exciting alternative? And uh, the idea of just saying I need an accompanist who's not a sexaholic, oh, what a dull. Yeah. Well, he even went so far as to figure, well, if it were God's will, that something like that happened. Yeah. Then, you know, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that, that's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because what I, I perfect in this sense, Todd, it, it's a perfect illustration of what this, what I was asking for, what this tape is about. What are these landmines that lie out there waiting for us to blow our legs off? 
And that's one of them. A beautiful job of putting it. Beautiful. Now, I don't know what it is. if the guy wants to go back there and hang on to his addiction. Beautiful. You, know. you don't play the piano, do you? <laughs> <laughs> I know a non-sexolic accompanist. <laughs> So, uh, but we don't, we want the excitement. It's like I said earlier too, of stepping off the edge into oblivion. Each new step of surrender. Felt would be off the edge into oblivion. Like, what's your first name back to the lawyer? Ben. Ben. Okay, Ben, what fun is law with no excitement? Well, Clancy does such a beautiful job of that in his tapes. He says... You got alcohol. You got excitement. You got color. He he he, he didn't want nuts being sober, trying to live without alcohol. There's no color. Life is black and white. It's gray. It's just ugly. And and he learned, he needed to get enough program, so there came to be life from the program to take the place of the color of his alcohol. And then this life now doesn't have these negative consequences. Yeah. Come on, I was reading in. Wait, wait, come up front. Oh, Yes, it is. Okay, it was. I was reading in the um, Facebook the other day. That um, I think it's on the 24-hour program, just on the back of that page. And you yeah. had read just a little bit on, on your reading. That um, if we do that 24-hour program, that we are undisciplined, we let God discipline us, then we're in much less danger of excitement. And when I saw that, I mean, I, I just really thought, I said, wait a minute, excitement is dangerous. Yeah. And it goes on to say, and worry, and self-pity, and all of these other things that um, that are dangerous, but have been so much a part of my life and my acting out. And it does seem strange to consider living without it, but the consequences have not been free of pain. Yeah. Have a seat. Um, yeah, yeah. There's, uh, there's a real pain and grief in giving up the only way of life we know. And we go through withdrawal. Charitably put, at 90 days, I think that's uh, could be closer to six months to a year of withdrawal. Oh yeah, mm. I'm at three weeks. Yeah. Yeah, you you got a nice start. <laughs> but um, we have to just look around the room and see the people who have weathered that storm and see what their looks life looked like just like the early AAs did uh, but would people who had, had found the answer put this simple kid of spiritual tools at our feet we had no choice but to pick them up because we were faced with this inexorable decision. If we continue on in our addiction, we're going to spiral ever further downward. Not just stay the same, downward. And they and the you know, we can all prove that to you. Or 
start spiraling upward. Different. And not real exciting at first. But I tell you, if you want excitement, you should see my life now. Okay, what kind of excitement do I have now compared to that kind of stuff I had before? I'm in a cardiac rehabilitation unit and um, so a bunch of us are going over for exercises uh, three days a week uh, for two, about two, three hours or three hours in the afternoon. And uh, there's uh, a couple of nurses and a couple of physical therapists there, uh, young women who, middle-aged women who take, uh, who help us. And it's just such a cute study in personal dynamics to watch us come through there and watch the way different they react to different patients and patients react to the, them and the way the patients react to each other. So here I, I walk in there and I've just been there now two full weeks. And it is such a joy to me to see what's going on there. And I, a professor friend of mine was there before and the minute I walked in there, he said, now Jess, this is Janet, and you gotta watch her because she's really uh, the policeman here. She makes you do this stuff. And he had this fun, he went on and got this funny cartoon of her. And then later he told me, the other day he told me, uh, I said, well, Jerry, I can see why you singled out Janet because I can, as I watch Janet, she's more of a philosopher. And the others are, most workers in that domain uh, there's no disrespect to them. Not, they're not philosophers. In fact, you wouldn't want them to be philosophers. They just go about doing their work. You know, here's Janet, the philosopher. I said, Jerry, I can see why you picked on, you know, pointed Janet out to me right away because she's such a philosopher. And Janet looks at me like, I, you know, I'm not, what do you mean a philosopher? Yeah. And, well, then I talked to Jerry about it about an hour or so later, and, and he said, uh, she because her job is to make sure you do your exercises and do this and do that. She sounds like kind of a policewoman. He said, but she's got a heart of gold, he said. And so I told uh, Janet that. I said, Jerry said that uh, you looked, I didn't quite say it that way. I said, Jerry said that, you know, underneath that philosophical exterior, you got a heart of gold on the inside. Jerry said that about me, you know, and then she accused him of saying something kind about her. And Jerry said, no, I did not say that. <laughs> but that deliciousness, of that love and affection and and the awareness of it okay it's like it's like my hands are smooth okay they can I can feel velvet now when I'm chopping wood for two weeks my hands get callous and I can't feel velvet I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.